Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Great to see you guys today. How's everybody doing? Happy Father's Day. Take your Bibles out. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now you saw that clip of Jordan speak. Didn't your heart break for him? I mean, I watched that on TV live and it was amazing to see him fall apart. And I could relate because I've hit many, many balls in the water. Uh, How many golfers we got out there today? Let me see your hand. All the golfers. Okay. Uh, You know, we just hit it in the water again and again and again, and it happens all the time. The only thing is between the difference between me and Jordan is we have what we call a mulligan. A mulligan means a do-over. And if you're playing with a bunch of guys that are lousy like me, what you do is at the beginning of the round, you might say, you know what, we get a couple mulligans, a mulligan each side, and you can take it. And if you make a really bad shot somewhere, we're going to let you do that shot again. Because we're all believers, and we believe playing with grace. I love grace. I love second chances. I love doing it all over again. So if you're learning how to play golf, that's really not in the rules, and don't, you're not supposed to learn that way. But if you play a lot of golf and you're like us, we allow do-overs or mulligans. So I want to read you a story about a father by the name of Eli, who if anybody wanted a chance to do it all over again with his sons, it was Eli. So let's stand together to read God's word this morning. Uh, It can be challenging being a father. There are so many times I blew it with my own kids, and, and I made mistakes, and I failed, and I said, oh, if I could have just done that over, if I could have just done that differently, if I could have just had a second chance. And so we're going to read about a man. He was a priest in the temple. He was in the early history of Israel. After they'd gotten into the promised land, uh, his name was Eli. Eli has two sons. Their names are Hophni and Phinehas. And so we're going to find out that if he had it to do all over again, he would. And so let's take and learn from him today. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests with the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice with the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come and with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would plunge it into the pot or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. The man said to him, let the fat be burned up first and then take whatever you want. The servant would answer him, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the God's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace and goodness in our lives. We are thankful, God, that, that with you, Lord, you give us a second chance. You uh, give us your grace, God, and that even though we blow it and fail so miserably often, God, you are there to pick us up. 
You're there to cleanse us, God. You're there to give us a new beginning and a new start. And we thank you, God. And we thank you for what you're going to do in the service this morning. We thank you for every man, every father that is here. And we pray you'll especially bless them. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Little boy prayed at night, got down beside his bedside, and he started out and said, God bless mommy. And then he prayed, God bless sister. And then he said, and God help daddy. I want to tell you, dads need a lot of help. We need help today, raising sons and daughters and raising kids. We definitely need help today. Families are falling apart all over America today, and often the blame is laid at the foot of dad for every problem, every situation, and so dad becomes the fall guy for every failed family in America today. And I want to tell you, that's not often justifiable. And sometimes we can heap the guilt and the blame all on dads, and it's not always the case. But I will tell you this, fathers, we need a lot of help from dad, from God. We need help from our Heavenly Father to know how to raise our sons and know how to raise our daughters because we can't do it by ourselves without the help of the Lord in this generation in which we live. I read this story about Eli and his sons. Eli was the priest of Israel, but he was a terrible father. And his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were, were tragic examples of a father's failure. And, and if, as we look at the story, and we're going to look deep into it this morning, if we were to bring Eli up here and interview him, he would say, if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it differently. What could we learn from Eli? What can we learn that he might have done differently, that if we'll take these principles and apply them to our life, it will save us a lot of sorrow and heartache down the road. What would I do differently if I could do it all over again, if I had another mulligan? I think the first thing he'd say is I would discipline my children. I would discipline my children. Look, if you would, at verse number 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. And then it says again in verse 29, if you want to jump down there very quickly. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and the offering I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel. Now here's exactly what was happening. They would bring the offerings into the temple area, into the, where the priests would be waiting. The priests would be allowed to take a portion of that for their own use, for their own feeding of the families in the house at the temple. But these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were taking much more than they were supposed to take. And so what they are doing in effect is they are extorting the nation of Israel out of their offerings. Uh, They're robbing the people of their meat offerings, uh, and they're literally skimming off the top. You've heard that terminology, and so they would take their fork in, they would pull up the meat, they would take as much as they wanted, leave a very little bit for the sacrifice, and in effect what they were doing is they were robbing God and stealing from God as they were ripping the people off. It would be like someone going down the aisles at offering time, which you just willingly and freely gave. Uh, But let's say they held the basket there, and it wasn't quite as much as they thought it should be. They'd shake it again, pull out a gun, and say, here, put some more money in the offering plate. They were ripping off the people. And he said this was a sin against God. They were defiling the temple of the Lord. 
There were three men who got together one day and they were talking about how they brought their offerings into the church or how they gave their offerings to God. And one guy said, well, I do it this way. I draw a line right down the middle of the room. I throw all my money up into the air. Whatever falls on the right side, God gets. Whatever falls on the left side, I get to keep. There I said, no, 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 no. I do it this way. I draw a circle in the middle of the room. I throw all the offering up in the air, whatever falls inside the circle, because God's at the center of my life. That's what he gets, and whatever falls outside the circle, that's what I get. The third guy says, man, I got a better way altogether. I throw all my money up into the air, and I figure whatever God wants, he'll take while it's up there, and whatever falls to the ground, I get to keep. (laughs) I, I hope that's not the way you decide your tithes and your offerings before you come into the house of the Lord. The sons of Eli were shaking down Israel. They were demanding more, and it says in verse 17, they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, here's the problem. Eli knows what's going on. He knows what's happening in the temple, but he does nothing about it. He doesn't remove them from office. He doesn't kick them out of the temple. He doesn't discipline his sons. Uh, He allows it to go on, and he never mentions it or never says a word about what his boys are doing. He refused to discipline his sons. It would later lead to the destruction of the family. So let me give you some some very practical guidelines, men, fathers, on how to go about disciplining your sons. The first thing you need to do in establishing discipline is this. Establish clear objectives and boundaries. Now, I think you ought to set the bar high for your kids. I think we ought to expect much out of our kids because the Bible says whatsoever we do, we do all to the glory of God. And so there should be high expectation out of our sons and out of our daughters. We literally can tell them, you got this. You got this. You can do this. You have the ability. You have the capability. You can do the task that is before you. You got this. Challenge them to do their very best. But you also need to establish clear and direct boundaries. When you have boundaries for your children, it tells your children you love them. Tells your children you care about them, not to allow them to run amok and run crazy and do their own thing. And so you establish clear boundaries because it reinforces their love and security. It actually, when you have boundaries for your kids as you are raising them, it gives them their sense of security. Because they know the laws, they know the rules of the house. Now I will tell you, as soon as you establish a boundary, that boundary will be tested And when your sons and daughters are testing the boundaries and crossing the boundaries, uh, they are doing that to see if you really love them. Because if you love them, you will discipline them. So when you discipline your children, uh, you are showing them you care enough about them uh, to monitor and and, and guard their behavior and guard the boundaries. If you don't do that, they feel unloved. Kids need to learn the response to take responsibility for their actions, that every action causes a reaction. And so when they are small, when they're young, uh, you let them know these are the boundaries. And when they cross those lines and boundaries, there is a reaction. Number two, clarify the consequences of disobedience. 
What is going to happen then when these boundaries are violated, when these boundaries are broken? Does your child understand your instructions? Now let me tell you something you need to do, parents, and this will save you a lot of grief. Give them only one warning. Any more warnings than that, you are teaching your children to disobey. Give them only one warning. Any more than that, you are teaching your children to disobey. Let me illustrate it for for you, and this is from Dr. James Dobson's books on the strong-willed child. He gives an illustration of a boy and a girl. They're playing in the sandbox, and the mother comes out, and it's time for supper, and she hollers, come on home, Johnny, time for supper. And the boy and girl just continue to remain playing in their sandbox. And the little boy doesn't move. He just sits there and plays with his trucks and the sand and whatever. And the little girl finally says, don't you think you better go home? It's about five, ten minutes later. And he's just still sitting there playing like he never heard anything. The mother gets out in front of the door again and says, you better come home this minute or I'm going to tan your hide. And with that, Johnny says, now it's time. Picks up the truck and heads on home. You see, when you give more than one warning, you're teaching your children your first warning really doesn't matter a lot. And so they'll push the boundaries as far as they can. And so give them only one warning. And number two, number three, excuse me, follow through on discipline. Follow through on it. Be strong about discipline, don't let it slide. If you hesitate and put it off and wait, you will one day forget the crime. And if you don't do it and that's always hanging over them, you will create an atmosphere of bitterness in your child's heart. Now, I'm going to give you my own philosophy. And guys, don't just, you know, everybody can, you seek God on how you do it on your own home. Uh, but but I, I believe God designed, so designed the bodies of your little children uh, so that there is extra padding on the glutamus maximus. That's just kind of the way he built us. And I think God did that for a reason. And so for me, a a ping pong paddle worked the best. I had just a little paddle, uh, good little action to it, good little wrist action, just worked firm, and it got the point across, got the message across, and it just worked fine for my kids. So don't take this out of context, and don't run home, and and my kids are grown, it's too late anyway, they can't arrest me, but... uh, They might have back then, but uh, it's done. They're grown and up, so I think the statute of limitations is passed. Uh, But 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 we hit hit the the ping-pong paddle on top of the hot water heater in the garage. You know those hot water heaters, they're they're pretty tall. And uh, and, and I'm going to tell on them a little bit. My middle son, Jason, who's now pastoring North Campus, which is kind of a miracle in itself, he, he he got more paddlings than Chad and Lindy put together. And, uh, and so he was the strong-willed child in the bunch. And so, so when uh, he got in trouble, and uh, I, I went looking, he, he had got a ladder, and he climbed on the, the, the hot water heater and hid the paddle. And I couldn't find it. I'm looking all over the house for my ping-pong paddle, and I cannot find it. And so, but on one occasion, uh, he had done something wrong, and Tanya told him, when your daddy gets home, you're going to get it. And he'd really cross some lines, cross those boundaries, did all those. You're really going to get it. 
So I came home, and she says, you got to go. You got to go take care of Jason. There wasn't any doubt who it was, but I uh, got to take care of Jason. So I, I found the paddle, and I brought him down, and I gave him his, his lick, a couple licks maybe, I don't know, two or three, couple maybe, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't flinch. There's not a tear. There's not a quiver. There's nothing. And I'm thinking, am I losing my touch? What's wrong with me? Is the wrist not working? Am I, it, it, you know, is it? And uh, he had, knew he was going to get it. He had put on eight pair of underwear <laughs> and prepared for that paddling. <laughs> it was like nothing. And, of course, it cracked me up, and it was over. He got by that one. So, anyway, kids, if you're listening to this and you're getting in trouble, pad on the underwear. Get them, get them piled on there. Follow through on the discipline. And number four, give your child an opportunity to repent. And it's in those times you can hug them and love them and show them you care and show them it's all about love and uh, that when you do discipline them, it's because you love them and you care enough to monitor and guard their behavior. I want to take you to uh, Hebrews chapter 12, just a great passage. And this really is talking more about the discipline of God but, uh, but he also refers to human discipline. And he talks about when God disciplines us, he does it because he loves us, because we're his children, because we're his sons and daughters. He wants to mold our behavior so that in the end, he says it will produce a peaceable fruit of righteousness. So, so let's read this. It says, endure hardship, verse 7, as discipline. God is treating you as sons. In other words, if God doesn't discipline us at all in our Christian journey or life, we're not really children of God. For what what son is not disciplined by his father? It's a part of being a dad. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. You see, your children will learn respect because you love them enough to discipline them. If you don't discipline your children, they will not learn respect. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so the, 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 the whole idea of discipline is to mold your children's behavior so that they will become righteous, so they will learn what righteousness is all about. And Eli refused to do that. He never would do that. It continues in the temple, and it will lead to the destruction of his family. And I think if he had one thing to say to us, if I could do it all over again, I would have disciplined Hophni and Phinehas and maybe saved their lives. Number two, teach your children to fear the Lord. Teach your children to fear the Lord. Let's go back. Look at that. Look at verse number 17, if you would. He's describing what took place in the temple. And he says, The son of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. 
In other words, they'd hung around the temple. They saw people coming and going. They thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. They had become very familiar with the presence of God and the ritual sacrifices that were going on. So familiar, they had lost their fear of God. There was no fear of the Lord whatsoever. Not only do we teach our children about God, but if you really want your children to learn to fear the Lord, they need to see it in your life. The worst thing we do is we tell them how to live their life, but we do something different. And if you're living a different lifestyle than what you're teaching them with your mouth, uh, at one point they're going to they're spit out all over on that because you're not living the life. They see that incongruity in your life instead of integrity in your life. And so they'll learn to respect God when they see not only do you talk about it, but you live it in front of your kids. And so let me just ask you, a, uh, Paul said this, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Can we say that to our sons and daughters? Fathers, when they see your life, what are they seeing and what are they witnessing? Do your kids only see you with a remote control switch in your hand uh, every evening? Or, or do they ever see you in the word of God and in prayer? Do they hear the love and joy of the Lord in your life? Or do they see anger and fits of rage and you losing your temper and yelling at your wife and your harshness and your criticism? Or do they see the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Love and joy and peace and gentleness. What do they, what do they see when they're watching your life? Do you show them love by spending time with your kids or do you show them love by just giving them things? Do you praise and encourage your children and lift them up? Ephesians 5, 2, he says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As you provide for your family and steward all of God's possessions, uh, will your children learn to trust in a heavenly father who is also their provider? Fathers and men, what kind of provider are you and do they understand early in life the, the principles of stewardship? That will all transfer over to their heavenly father. As you model respect for God, as you model respect for his word, as you model respect for his church, uh, kids will grow up with those same values in their own life. Teach your kids respect for God. Number three, teach your children the importance of moral purity. Write this down. Very, very important in this day and age in which we live. Don't count on the schools for their sex education. It will be very perverted and warped. Teach your children the importance of moral purity. Now let's pick up the story. First of all, they're robbing the congregation of the, of the offerings that were brought in, but it gets worse than that. Look, if you would, at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing in all Israel, and then he goes on to say, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So now none of this is being done in secret. All Israel knows what Hophni and Phinehas are doing. It's become a scandal in the priesthood. Not only are they robbing the people, now they're having intercourse with the ladies bringing in the offerings. They're raping the women in the tent of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my son, it's not a good report I hear spreading among the Lord's people. It's almost as if Eli's more concerned with his public image than he is the fact 
that his sons are involved in sexual immorality inside the temple. They're turning the temple of God into a brothel. Tony Evans is an eloquent speaker and writer, and I could not say it better than he could, so I'm quoting him here. Humpty Dumpty climbed on the top of a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a doozy of a fall and went to the White House. Congress passed fixed Mr. Dumpty legislation. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't fix Mr. Dumpty because just like Mr. Dumpty, they were broken people. I think if you're looking for White House to fix everything, you're sadly mistaken. If you're counting on this next election to fix America, it's not going to happen. And yet before we criticize the White House, we need to take a, look at, a long look at our own house and what's happening inside of my house. And so I want to tell you fathers, listen to me. It's your responsibility to cleanse the house. Cleanse the house. Take out any hint of your house of anything that would be inappropriate sexually Uh, filthy language, filthy talk, get it out of your house. Don't allow it on your television screen. Don't allow your children to watch with you every night that garbage that's on there. Because as they see that over and over again, they are picking up this world's value. Teach your children at home, to, to teach your children to honor their bodies as the temple of the Lord. The Bible says these bodies are the temple of the Lord. And to say no to the enemy who is trying to seduce them. Now listen to me. Teach your children that passing out condoms is not the answer. That's what they'll learn at sex education in school. They get it now about the 8th grade. So in 8th grade in Dorchester 2, they're going to get sex education. And most of the sex education in Dorchester 2 County will be how to use a condom and how to protect yourself. There'll be a little physiology involved in that, but... but there's the teaching of abstinence. I think you get to that about page 67 in the book. And it's a little blurb on that. By the way, if you can, which you can't, abstain. And that's the message that they're picking up in our middle schools today. There has to be a more compelling reason for not having sexual immorality than just the possibility of getting pregnant or an STD. Because that's the message that's out there. Go ahead and have sex, but just make it safe sex. And if it's safe sex, it's okay. That's the responsible thing to do. The bottom line is, we are children of God, and the Bible says, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God dwells inside of me, and so there's got to be a higher motivation that your sons and daughters need to learn about than just the risk of getting pregnant while they're teenagers. Now let's turn to the Bible for this. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and let's look at verse number 15. I want to break it down for you. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 15. Listen, you, if you've got junior high kids, start in junior high, teach them 
these five, six verses get this down in their spirits. And there's, there's many other places in the New Testament, but this is probably as clear as any. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse number 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? In other words, when a, when a person gives their life to Christ, there is a unique union that goes on between you and Christ. You are one with him. And you're members of his body, the body of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Anybody you're not married to. Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. There is a union that takes place. There is a sexual union that takes place. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself to the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, let me just tell you this. When you join yourself with someone else who is not your wife, you as a child of God are taking Christ in that bedroom with you. And he says, is there no fear of God and the holiness of God? And you, so first of all and foremost, it is a sin against God himself. That is a higher call than just you don't want to get pregnant. There's some validity to that. But that's not what we're teaching our kids. We're teaching our kids. We're teaching our teenagers that your body belongs to God. You're one with God. So you take Christ in whatever activity you enter into. And so you're in the backseat of that car. Christ Jesus Christ is in there with you. With you. Don't defile Christ in that way or the spirit of Christ. There's a second reason. Let's keep on reading. He says, flee from sexual immorality, verse number 18. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. You've sinned against Christ, but he goes on to say, now you're sinning against your very own body. Do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you received from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, here's the problem. In, in human sexuality, when you are involved in intercourse, there are endorphins that are kicked off in your brain that go nuts. You give a part of yourself away to that person so that when you break up with that person and join with somebody else and join with somebody else, and you become very, very fragmented in your mind. Your mind gets messed up. Your body gets messed up. That's why God says, in my plan, which is always best for you, my way is always best, obedience is always best, my way is best, wait till you enter into a covenant agreement with one man, one woman, for the rest of your life. Then there's no mess up in your mind. There's no guilt there, there's no fragmentation, there's no comparisons with the other three or four women you've had along the way. God gives us this for our very best. Couples that wait till they're married to have sexual intercourse, that marriage is going to go the distance. The trust factor's there. You can trust your spouse. They can trust you because you've proven yourself. 
through the courtship process. He says, you sin against your own body. We got kids, young people, young men, young women, young adults. They are so messed up in their mind. They're fragmented. It's, it's like, you take, you're like you take two boards and you glue them together with super glue. You try to rip those boards apart, it's liable to break the wood before it breaks the glue bond there. And so it is with sexual immorality. Teach your children. Tony Evans tells a story of his son, of his son playing basketball. And his son came in and said, Dad, come out. I want you to watch me dunk the ball like Michael Jordan. And Tony Evans writes, and by the way, his son is quite an athlete. He writes, he, he writes in his book, he says, he says, I knew my, my son was a good basketball player. I just didn't know he was that good. And I couldn't believe he could get that high and be dunking like that. He said, I, I went out to watch him to see how he could do this. And when I got out, the first thing I noticed is he had lowered the backboard to nine foot instead of ten foot. <laughs> What's happened is the world has lowered the standards. The world has lowered the goal to eight, nine, seven foot, whatever it is, so we can dunk the basketball. Parents, keep the standards high. It's doable. Teach your kids the value of moral purity. Moral purity. Mm -mm. If you go to the airport, you get ready to fly out somewhere. You go through these metal detectors. And uh, they've tightened them up a little bit. But used to be you could go through if you had a watch on or, or a belt buckle. Sometimes it wouldn't pick that up. And you just waltz on through and you head on out and you pick up the rest of your stuff coming down the belt. You get that computer and your carry-on bag and your cell phone and you pick it up. But if they turn the sensitivity up on the machine, you, a little watch or even a belt buckle will set that thing off. And so what they do now is you got to take your belt off and anything that might be metal, you take all that off because it's all how the machine is calibrated to pick up that metal. It depends on how the sensitivity is set. What I'm telling you, parents, dads, set the sensitivity high on the moral scale in your house. Set the sensitivity of your children's conscience very, very high to the voice of the Holy Spirit so they can still hear that still, small voice when he speaks so that they will come to know that I don't want to do anything that will offend my Lord and my Savior. Number four, teach your children to respect authority. Jump down to verse 25. It says, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke. By the time that Eli kicks into gear and he's trying to tell his kids to stop that, it's too late. They no longer were listening to their dad because they had no respect for his authority. Now, the best way to teach them to respect your authority is to live a life of integrity. It's, there's two kinds of authority. There's positional authority that says, I'm dead, and because I'm dead, you got to do what I say to. But there's a higher authority that's a moral authority. It's because I'm dead, but I also live the life in front of you, and this is how you live it. Fathers, you forfeit your moral authority when you tell your kids not to drink, but you stop off at the bar on your way home at the end of the day. You have no moral authority. You can't tell your kids don't do drugs if you go to the refrigerator and you're popping a brewski every night. Boy, it's quiet now. No one's shouting me down here. You forfeit moral authority. 
The best way to teach them to respect authority is for you to maintain your moral authority. Be the same person you are at home and at work and at play and at church. And then one more footnote on this respecting authority. You model respecting authority when you respect those who are in authority over you. For example, if you run down at the dinner table your boss, or you go home Sunday after lunch and run me down or any other pastor on staff here, or your next door neighbor, you can expect your kids to be critical of their authorities as well. Why? Because they've heard it at home. They think that's acceptable behavior. So if you in front of them uh, run down those in authority over you, they also will have no respect for authority, but the respect they're going to lose is your authority. How did Eli's failure end? Well, Hophni and Phinehas decided we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. The Philistines are coming. They take the ark. They march into battle, and, and uh, they get killed on the battlefield. So Hophni and Phinehas both die in war. And it's really seen in the context of this as the judgment of God for their wickedness. Not only that, but the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized the presence of God, is taken by the Philistines uh, out of the land or area of Israel where they were at. Word comes back to Eli. Eli, the Bible, we, we don't know exactly what happened to him. It says he fell over and hit his head and died. He had a stroke or a heart attack or something like that when he got the news of what happened to his sons. He fell out of his chair. His neck broke, and he dies on the spot. Phineas, by the way, who was killed on the battlefield, his wife was pregnant at the time. When word gets back, she is also goes into labor, and uh, she gives birth to a son. In the process of giving birth to a son, Phineas' wife dies on the delivery table. She's dead and gone and finished, uh, and they have a boy. They have to come up a name with a name for the boy. And by the way, guys, if you're having sons, don't choose this name. They chose the name Ichabod. Ichabod literally means the glory has departed. The glory has departed out of Israel. And so you have this national tragedy and, and travesty that happens all because Eli uh, honored his sons above God. He put his sons above God and refused to stand for a holiness and discipline his sons. It, it was a deadly poison that led to the destruction of his entire family and his ministry never passed to his sons. The priesthood ends with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. It's done and over and his sons do not carry the mantle of the priest in Israel all because he failed to do those four things. Now, here's the good news. I want you to go, if you would, let's go back to this text. I'm going to wrap it up quick. Go back to the text. Look at verse number 26. There is a ray of hope. God will always have a remnant, and God will always have a ray of hope. Verse 26 of chapter 2. And the boy Samuel, everybody say Samuel, Continue to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Now listen to me. There are lessons to be learned from Eli's negative example, and I hopefully you picked up some of those lessons this morning. But God gave Eli a mulligan. He gave him a second chance. He gave him a second chance with a boy by the name of Samuel. Now you get the idea when Hannah brings Samuel into the temple area, 
she gives him over after he is weaned to Eli to raise. By the time he brings Samuel, and Samuel's a boy of five when he gets this revelation of, of how bad Hophni and Phinehas really are inside the temple area. So we know they're grown by then. They're young men by then. He's already failed with his own sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, but God gives him a mulligan. That mulligan is Samuel. And he is going to raise Samuel to follow the Lord, only this time he's going to do a much better job with Samuel than he did with his own two boys. Samuel means gift of God. In other words, he has another gift of God, another chance, another opportunity. Turn, if you would, look at this. This is so remarkable. 1 Samuel 3 and verse 1. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. By the way, the word of the Lord was rare because there was so much immorality and wickedness within the nation of Israel. There were not many visions One night, Eli, whose eyes had become so weak he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Aren't you thankful? There's a flicker of the lamp of God still burning. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And the Lord called to Samuel. Samuel answered, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. So he went down to lie down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. My son Eli said, I did not call you. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The Lord called Samuel a third time. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am. You called me. Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy, so Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. If he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in that place, and the Lord came and stood there calling his other time, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Samuel's going to become the new priest for the nation of Israel because Hophni and Phinehas will die in battle. They will be killed. Eli made one brilliant move to carry on the legacy of faith. He taught Samuel how to hear the voice of the Lord. Probably of all the things you'll teach your sons and daughters, teach them how to hear the voice of the Lord. And to say, yes, Lord, your servant is listening. Your servant hears. And he would become an incredible leader for the nation of Israel. And by the time you get to 1 Samuel 4 and verse 1, it says, and Samuel's words came to all Israel. He literally brings Israel back to God. Listen, I want to tell you something, men. You fathers here today, you may have made many mistakes. I will tell you in raising my three kids, I made a lot of mistakes in my child raising. And sometimes we come on Father's Day and we can leave so heavy because we feel like we've been beat up for the last 40 minutes. And, and man, I just, I hate to come on Father's Day because I'm going to hear how lousy of a dad I really am or how bad fathers really are or how much we blow it. And, and maybe as I was setting up the message, that's the idea you started with. But I will tell you, God's grace is incredible. God says, you know what? You hit that last shot in the water. You may have hit your second shot in the water, your third shot, your fourth shot. But listen, tee it up again. I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to show God's grace and love through your life. Listen, as long as you're living, breathing, and moving, God has time to use you to reach your kids. No matter at what age they may be. 
And you may have been a lousy father when your kids were small, and then you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ later in life after your kids have already grown up and gone your own way. They may, they'll see a change in your life. They'll see a new dad. They may be coming to your house today. They're going to see you pray for the first time over your meal. That's awesome because God gives us second chances. Very late in life, God gave Samuel to Eli. And I will tell you, with your sons and your daughters and your kids, it's never, ever too late. Some of you got young kids now. God's giving you instruction this morning. You can turn to the light. And some of you today may not even know Jesus Christ. You've come into this place because it's Father's Day and you were drugged here by your kids. But I want to tell you, you're here for a reason, for a purpose. And God can give you a second chance. And the Bible says when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And you can become a Christ follower and a model of integrity before your own kids. It's never, ever, ever too late. And your kids will see a brand new father and not only will you impact your kids now but you can impact your kids literally for all eternity because they'll see God's grace in you and they'll say man if he could save my daddy he's real and he can save me too it's never ever too late thanks for listening to this weekly podcast check out faithishere.org for podcasts and videos of our previous messages